Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with Rabbi Lawrence Kushner. There is a shorter produced version of this wherever you get your podcasts. It was a very long time ago when I interviewed you before. It was early, early days of the show, and um, very interesting. Because, you know, our show is on all over the country, but it's not on um, KQED. Um, so I don't know if you've – we had a lot of podcasters in San Francisco, but you may not know that back then um, the program was called Speaking of Faith for the first seven That's years. What, and we talked uh-huh, about that. Yes. yes. And we, in 2010, um, changed the name to On Being. And I felt as I steeped in your thinking and writing and thinking about this subject in particular, mystical tradition, that – that's a, that's a lovely evolution. Um, spiritually, it's very compatible with what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Very, <laughs> I like that a lot. I noticed that. Yeah. yeah. It was fun for me to see. Tell me, how do you say, how do you say, do you say Kabbalah, Kabbalah? How do you say it? I know well, it's... Well, it, it, it's uh, a, a cute aside is that it's a measure of how anglicized a Hebrew word has become. If, because uh, Hebrew accents the last syllable, yeah. but English likes to move it forward. Mm-hmm. So in Hebrew, it's Kabbalah, yeah. and in English, it's usually Kabbalah. Right. So, but either one is correct, Kabbalah or Kabbalah. Well, I prefer to say it correctly, but I'm aware that it's usually said. Now I can't remember. It's usually said Kabbalah, right? In yeah, that, America, that would be the Kabbalah. a yeah. more English sounding. Acceptable pronunciation. Okay, we will yeah. we will we will try to say Kabbalah, and not sound too pretentious. <laughs> um, uh, so how are how are we, Chris? Are we? Can we? Okay. All right. Um, I think you were doing this as I arrived, but could you um, say something like what you had for? Is it lunchtime there yet? Maybe not quite. Oh, no, what did you have breakfast. for breakfast? I had a, a gar- garlic bagel with the fried egg and a cup of Pete's coffee. Huh. Chris, is that do you for levels? Okay. All right. That's great. Um, so let me just start by saying, you know, we are going to talk about your understanding and life with Kabbalah and the insights of Kabbalah, of the Jewish mystical tradition, um, mm-hmm. which... Gershom Sholem kind of brought into remembrance and into into modern imaginations in the 20th century, and I, I think in some way, you know, helped to make a part of your life and and that of others. Um, so, so you know, as we st- we we have this grant from Lily may have explained this. You have this grant from National Endowment for the Humanities to to do programs on historical figures, their mm-hmm. spiritual lineage, and they may or may not be spiritual figures themselves. So we've done Einstein in this series, and we've done Rumi, um, and we've done Amy Semple McPherson. Um, but when I started to look at Gershom Sholem, Sholem it seemed to me that um, the, the um, you know, he, he, what he was bringing to light 
was a, a tradition in which there are voices within voices and wisdom within wisdom, and that it is actually absolutely in the spirit of that to really to really talk about you, explore this in terms of lineage, and really draw you out in terms of this living tradition, right? How you live with this and understand it now. So he he's going to be kind of in this conversation. I will bring him into the conversation. You may bring him into the conversation, but we're we're going to be speaking but in the hey, present show tense. Him you- Yes, so go on. Show him. Mm-hmm. Show you him. say bring yes. him. Show him. Yes, yes, okay, yes. yes. Um, <clears throat> I'll be I'll be bringing his words in and ideas. But <clears throat> you know, I'm saying we're going to be talking about this uh, kind of like creation. It's an ongoing process, not something that happened back then, um, right? In his historical lifetime. So, so I, I think this is going to be pretty organic. But I just wanted to. Um, does that make sense to you as we start? Yes. Okay. Yes. Good. Um, so I do want to start. Just a little bit with you. Um, you, I know, grew up in a Reformed Jewish household. Um, so, so there was, so there was obviously a, a Jewish background to your childhood. But I, I do want to ask you: was there a was there a spiritual or or, or a mystical background in your childhood? Or well, or I, uh, yeah. my own personal story, I think, uh, precisely parallels. Um, uh, 20th century uh, religious thought, at least from a liberal Jewish point of view, because uh, while I grew up in a what I call a pious Reformed Jewish home, my parents were, while assimilated, they were very, very serious about being Reformed Jews. And at no time in my upbringing through high school— and then I went off to uh, University of Cincinnati and the Hebrew Union College that ordained me a rabbi. I virtually never heard the word mysticism or Kabbalah or Zohar. Hmm. And that, uh, and I think that's typical certainly not only of Reformed Jews but of uh, certainly all post-Orthodox Jews and probably a lot of Orthodox Jews too. For most of the 19th and certainly the first half of the 20th century, all the pages on Kabbalah and mysticism and Zohar were effectively torn out of the history books. And there was uh, mm-hmm. several generations mm-hmm. of uh, Jews like myself who, knew, who didn't know it existed. And uh, alas, uh, unfortunately, tragically, uh, Judaism lost several generations of some of its best and brightest young men and women who, not knowing that it existed in Judaism— sought it instead in the traditions of the East. Right, right. And they disappeared, left the Jewish map entirely. Right. So so <clears throat> today, all of the great, most of the leaders of American Buddhism were these Jewish oh, kids yeah. back in the 60s and 70s, right? That's it. That's yeah. it. Um, Zalman, Zalman Shachter Shalomi tells the wonderful story. Mm-hmm. I'll see if I can remember it. He says, yeah, he, he wanted to get some incense, so he figured... He was in a foreign, city, a foreign city, figured he'd call the local ashram. Certainly they would have incense. And uh, he identified himself as a rabbi. And the voice on the other said, ah, you Jews are such a spiritual people. He said, why do you say that? He said, because everyone in my ashram is Jewish. <laughs> right. Well, so, so when did Kabbalah um, and Jewish mysticism <clears throat> enter your imagination? And how did that happen? Um, well, I... Uh, it wasn't until I, uh, I was in the last couple of years of my rabbinic school education, it's a, it's a five-year graduate program, that 
I began to realize that most of the ideas that I was fascinated to, uh, fascinated by, were um, had something to do with mystical characters mm. and the ideas that that they talked about. I finally went to uh, my professor at the time, uh, Jacob Petachowski, his memory is a blessing, and said something like in his office, I said, uh, uh, Jacob, w w what's this about mysticism? And he sort of sat back in his chair and said, oh, I see you've discovered something. And we talked a little bit and he pulled off the shelf uh, a book by Gershom Scholem, probably his uh, magnum opus. It's called Major Trends in Jewish right. Mysticism. And he gave it to me, and I ran home and tried to read it. And at about 10 o'clock, I fell asleep because it's really tough, serious, heavy Jewish history. But it's uh, extraordinary. And what Sholem did in that book was that he brought the Jewish mystical tradition to the English reading public. Mm. So, so when would that have been? What decade? Well, that was for me. That yeah. was in the uh, in the sixties. Okay, and Sholem didn't die until nineteen eighty two, so he he was still alive then. I I uh, was uh, privileged to hear him speak on a couple of different occasions. Mm. Uh, he wasn't a particularly lovable character. He was. Uh, <laughs> I I think of him more as uh, precise, fierce, determined capable of uh, real expressions of anger and disappointment hmm. in what the questioner said. He was a tough guy. Hmm. So so one of his contributions, and really as a, he was an historian, and in, in some ways he did a lot of detective work. Um, one of his contributions was in determining that the Zohar, which is really the master text, um, the chief literary work of this movement, um, was not did not date back to a long-hidden second-century manuscript, as many thought, but was had been actually penned in the 13th century by the Castilian Kabbalist, Moshe de Leon. But you you well, often write about the fact that this doesn't doesn't really seem to matter very much. And it didn't, you know, it didn't take away for, for Sholem the significance of this text or tradition, and it doesn't seem to take away for you either or for many generations of Jews. Uh, you know, on the face of it, that might seem a little puzzling to some people. So how do, how do, how do you explain Well, that? actually, um, you know, when, you, when you first learn that the Zohar wasn't written by Shimon Bar Yochai, mm -hmm. the second century Galilean sage, as it purports to be, you know, there's a bit of disappointment, but Sholem sort of uh, meets you out behind the building and calms you down by saying that uh, pseudepigraphy, claiming somebody else wrote the book, did not carry with it in uh, in the 12th, 13th centuries uh, the same kind of uh, uh, insult that it does today. It was very common, Sholem said, for people in those generations who wrote something extraordinary to assume, <coughs> excuse me, to assume that um, they couldn't have possibly written it themselves. All right. Do, do you have and some water they, there? Do, are you okay? Do you, yeah, I've got some. Yeah. Okay, good. All right, sorry. Um, Just want to make sure. No, that, they, that right. they couldn't have written it themselves and must have obviously, therefore, channeled a long dead sage. Mm -hmm. 
And it's it's not uncommon today. I mean, I, I've spent most of my life writing things. And the best stuff I've written, I write it, I you know, hold it at a distance and look at it and think, that's too good for Kushner to have written. Something must have gone wrong. <laughs> but, <laughs> and you know, this is also, this was also an issue and is an issue for modern Christians in terms of the the authors of the gospel writings. And um, so it's, yeah, it's not, this is not just specific to Judaism. Um, I mean, you, you, you also wrote somewhere that Sholem suggested that the Zohar is a mystical novel. And in fact, you pointed that out in the novel you wrote um, <sighs> about Kabbalah. I mean, I think in a sense to introduce, as a fitting way to introduce this text, this tradition to modern people. Yeah, well, um, Sholem uh, suggested that uh, the Zohar was a novel. Remember, it was uh, it appeared in Spain, I think, around the, si- the time of Don Quixote. Huh. And um, it does purport, the, this master text of Kabbalah does purport to be the novelistic um, uh, musings and uh, oh, peripatetic teachings of uh, Shimon Bar Yochai and his disciples as they wander the Galilean hills, and they have adventures, and they're recorded mm. in uh, the Zohar. They they meet a, a child who astonishes these mystical seekers uh, with wisdom beyond anything they could have anticipated. They meet an old man, a, a donkey driver, and each one of these people that they meet uh, tells them other amazing stories, and those things are recorded as well. Mm-hmm. It's it's important uh, to to remember. You mentioned Christianity yeah. earlier before the three great Western uh, traditions: uh, Judaism, Islam, and uh, and Christianity are revealed religions. Yeah. That is, they came into being because God revealed God's self to a prophet, to a, to a person, and that the texts recording those revelations become the center of those religions. Uh, it poses a kind of a, a fascinating problem for, for Judaism because if I, as a Jew, am in possession of God's word, the, let's say the five books of Moses or the Hebrew Bible— um, then I would have a difficult time justifying why I would bother reading or owning any other book. Mm. Who cares? I mean, if I've got God's book, that's all I need to know. That's all I need to read. Indeed, I know some people who only have God's books on their bookshelves. Mm. So uh, in a revealed tradition, you can't come up with a new book. And Sholem's famous dictum about that is that in a revealed tradition— Novelty and creativity must masquerade as commentary. So if you la-di-da your way into a group of Western religionists and say, I've got a new book, I've got a, a new book to the Torah, okay. I've got a new gospel, whatever it is, they'll throw you out. They say, how, how dare you be so presumptuous as to say that? So applying Sholem's teaching to that, the principle would be you have to say, well, I, this is nothing new, this book that I've written here. It's really just a commentary on on God's book. Hmm. And then the Jews say, oh, we're all ears. Bring it on. Let's hear what you have to say. You know, I want to ask you about some language 
you used. I mean, there's so many ways to describe what Kabbalah is, what what this tradition is. But one, this is one way you did it somewhere. You said as a system of theosophy attains maturity as a system of theosophy claiming to explain the influence of human action on the inner life of God. That's a very intriguing statement, the influence of human action on the inner life of God. Can it's you, delicious, can you, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, say some more about that, what that means. Well, it, Sholem, uh, Sholem again, again, it, it's, it's very difficult to separate out Sholem from Kabbalah. Mm-hmm. But Sholem uh, comes along and says that the Torah itself claims to be a document describing the inner life of God. And through studying the Torah, one therefore not only learns about how to act or uh, how to look at the universe, but one realizes that uh, you realize immediately that you are reading about the ultimate nature of being and therefore the DNA of creation or the warp and woof of the way the world works. And that effectively becomes the inner life of God. Right. And where, where, when, how can human action possibly influence the inner life of God? Because that's the other part of that sentence. Well, um, there were. Uh, let me just take a, a short step back, if I may. Yeah. Um, the the Zohar, which, as uh, you already mentioned, is the master text of a Jewish mysticism, and for all practical purposes, is Kabbalah. There. There are other minor strands of the Jewish mystical tradition, but nothing equaling the Zohar. The re- one of the reasons, uh, the, there, are, there are four reasons why the Zohar was so, scholars think, was so widely accepted. It, it came up with uh, four big new ideas. Um, uh, the first one is that God is Ein Sof, the one of infinite nothingness. Right, right. And then the Svirot, the, the doctrine of the inner structure of how being works. And then the third one is, is that for the first time, uh, there is a feminine dimension to God that is now openly discussed in, uh, in the Zohar, so that uh, there is Eros in heaven. And the fourth and the most important one, which you've just alluded to in Hebrew, is called Sorech Gevoha, heaven's need. Mm-hmm. And in Kabbalistic mm-hmm. thinking, uh, heaven uh, is not perfect. Uh, it's uh, out of whack. Uh, it's out of alignment. It needs a chiropractor. Uh, the divine has <laughs> got a lot of pain. And when the Jew does the holy deeds that are commanded by the by the Torah, God goes, crack, oh, thank you, I feel so much better. You have helped somehow restore the inner balance and harmony in heaven that heaven needs. So what the mystical tradition did for the everyday Jew was it said not only you should do this because God wants you to do it and it would be a good thing, but you should do this because God personally needs it. And this and is that, connected that, to mitzvot, right? This is connected to good, that's good works. What right. We do. So instead of instead of just being mitzvot or holy deeds that the Jew does, now the Jew is also personally helping God. And that, wow, that just gives a whole lot more importance to everyday religious life. And 
I think was one of the reasons why so many Jews became, uh, in, let's say, uh, entranced with with mysticism. Mm-hmm. But but it's not, and it's a wonderful connection, and it's not necessarily a connection that comes to mind for modern people when they hear mysticism. They don't necessarily think of practical life in this world. I mean, here's something Gershom Sholem said time and again. The rabbis insisted that mystical experience, the love of God, must be confirmed by activity in the human community, that it is not enough for an individual to pour out his soul to God. I don't think that that, you know, I think that that connection has been broken a bit in modern imaginations. Um, well, especially if you contrast a, a Jewish way of organizing religious reality with a generic Christian way. Um, the the main move for Christianity is, or the beginning place, is one's belief. Mm-hmm. Um, and from there, it goes to good acting. Uh, Judaism is sort of the reverse. Yeah. Uh, Judaism doesn't spend much time thinking about what you believe or what you don't believe. It probably would say you can't help what you believe. Uh, it's possible to go through a a serious Jewish educational experience for many years and never be told what you should believe. But what you are told consistently and regularly is this is what God wants. These are the mitzvot. This is what Jews do and how you should act. There's a a line of Einstein talked about, you know, as he grew older, he, he loved the fact that Judaism was, I think he said it was about life as we live it and can grasp it. Um, less than about something transcendent or about beliefs. Didn't you also point out somewhere that um, tikkun olam, which is you know, a phrase that a lot of people know and translate as repair the world, doesn't even just mean repair the world, but in this mystical sense is repair the cosmos? Oh, to be sure. It's yeah. to fix the universe. It goes fix back to... the universe, yeah. <clears throat> it's a, the universe is broken, uh, to to appreciate this, uh, we need to step back uh, a little bit and go to the 16th century in Sfat, where uh, one of the <clears throat> the great Kabbalists lived, Isaac Luria. Yeah. Uh, he didn't live very long, but spent uh, not not maybe the better part of a decade in the northern Galilean town of Sfat. Today, it's an Israeli artists' colony. Mm. Um, but he came up with a whole new concept of how the world came into being, and it was so seminal, um, so so potent that it still exists today. Um, it, basically, there are three parts to it. Uh, the first part in Luria's, Isaac Luria's thinking was that um, since God was everywhere at the beginning of time, there was nowhere for the world to create. So God had to voluntarily make a space within God's self in which to create the world. Sort of like taking a big deep breath or holding your breath. Uh, uh, another example would be being the parent of a, <coughs> a two-year-old uh, walking down a supermarket aisle. And the parent doesn't want to be right on top of the kid, but the parent wants to watch the kid to make sure... She doesn't pull the bottom can out of a pyramid of 200 cans of soup or something. And that experience of holding your breath and not jumping on a kid unless it's absolutely necessary 
uh, in a, from a parenting point of view, is also called simsum, ma making a space so that something you love or that you want to create will have room to grow. So that, that's the first concept. Second concept, according to Luria, was that uh, God had planned then to create a series of vessels into which God would pour like divine light. And when the first vessel was filled, it would overflow naturally into one of those fountains, like a, a fountain, where uh, the light would spill into the next vessel and the next vessel until it went down through all the vessels, and there was an orderly and beautiful creation. But uh, God hadn't anticipated the potency of the, 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 the light, and when the light hit the vessels, instead of neatly holding the light until they were filled and then overfilling into the next one, they all broke. They shattered. Right. And uh, in Hebrew, that's called shavirat hakelim, the shattering of the vessels. Mm. And the result was a, a cosmic garbage heap, which is the world in which we live. Broken shells and husks. Sometimes the shells are called uh, uh, shells or uh, shards or uh, uh, pieces or broken things. And that leads to the, the third concept in Luria's uh, creation system. And that is called tikkun olam. Right. And that is what people need to do is to put the pieces back together and fix the broken world. Yeah, and the idea is and that these shards are lodged all over the place, right, inside everything. They're, yeah. they're everywhere. Well, or, yeah. or, or, or another way to think of it is everything you see is a shard, mm. and inside it is trapped a little bit of divine mm. light. Mm -hmm. So if I use the broom to swat a kid I'm mad at, the light inside it becomes even more encrusted and less likely to be freed. But if I use the broom to sweep the floor to make room for a wedding, to clean the place up, then the light inside the broom is released. The broom is fulfilled and the world is that much more closer to being repaired. It's kind of neat. It's really, you yeah, can, it's wonderful. You can um, see why it's so popular in the Jewish community today. Well, and... And it it is you know as you describe it it's it sounds mystical and mythical and yet, um, you know just going back to what you described as kind of some of these basic ideas in the that the Zohar brought that Kabbalah and the Zohar brought into being the the Ein Sof and uh, and the Sefirot is that how you said it Sef Sefirot 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 um, uh -huh. there are ways in which. These ideas, um, in all their wildness, are also very resonant with what 21st century science is saying about the nature of reality. Is that something you think about? Um, yeah, I, I, um, I tried to write about it. Uh -huh. um, the, the, the best book on that is by my, my friend and uh, colleague, Rabbi Daniel Matt, yeah. who, as we speak, is translating the, the Zohar. Um, I, I lost what we were saying. Yeah. Well. So. So. I mean. Just. You know. I. I mean. I need to. I need to back up a little bit because everybody's not. Okay. Um. In this. But so. So. Insof. It's kind of. You know. And these. Again. This is your language. The font. The source. The matrix. The mother load of being. The. The original light. Right. That mm -hmm. original spark. That cosmic seed. 
a point of light containing everything yet to come. And then here's this wonderful way you you, you describe it. You say, Ein Sof, it is to being what electricity is to the letters and words on a video computer monitor. <laughs> uh, How, what, explain that. Well, it brings it into being. It uh, enables it to, to keep going. I, I think the, the best way to understand it, Krista, is to uh, uh, teach, uh, remind you of two Hebrew words uh, that are in Kabbalistic language much more important than their their normal definitions. The first word is yesh, and uh, it's sort of untranslated. If you held my feet to the fire, I'd say you'd translate it as isness, beingness, and yesh refers to virtually everything in creation, anything that has a beginning or an end, that has spatial coordinates, that has a definition, that is bordered by other things. And it's not just material reality. I mean, love has a beginning. It has an end. Uh, Beauty uh, can have a definition. And it's not bad. It's not something to be renounced. I mean, anybody who's tried to live in the world knows that it is a world of yesh. You and I are yesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, our microphones are yesh. The room, the city of San Francisco is yesh. Everything is yesh. Yesh is not bad. It's only bad if you think that's all there is. Turns out there's only one thing that's not yesh. It has no beginning. It has no end. It's not bordered by anything. It has no definition. It has no spatial coordinates. You probably can't say as much about it as I'm about to try to say. It is the opposite of Yesh. It is called Ein Sof, without end. Um, literally, it means nothing, with a, but with a capital N. Because if I said it was right. something, you know, you got to stay with the logic here. Yeah. If I said something, then you think, oh, well, it's next to another thing. Yeah. And the Kabbalists, uh, being serious about logic also, they're very logical, said, no, there's the only way we can talk about this non-yesh thing is to call it no thing or nothing. And that becomes Ein Sof. And that has something to do with God, the source of everything of Yesh. Everything in the world is made of Ein Sof. Everything in the world is a, a wave of which the Ein Sof, or God, is the ocean. And our knowledge, our knowledge of the ocean is largely based on the way it manifests itself in the waves. That is, the Yesh. So, my closest I can come to learning about uh, Ein Sof and God is by talking to you or looking at a tree or planting one. Right. And, um, but but this, this understanding of God also defies the containers that religion generally puts God in, or maybe just that our minds put God in because they are what they are. Because it, it, right, this nothing with a capital N is also everything, right? And it is, and, and this, this, and this more. right, yes. and more, right, right. And so it, it is, it is God and it, and God in this conception. I mean, I'm, I'm using the words I can. I want you to correct me and elaborate, but is, 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 is also not a thing, but in, in everything and is everything in this mystical it, understanding. It, 
let me try it this way. Yeah. Uh, there are t two ways to understand our, our relationship with God. I'm going to say right up in front, they're both just metaphors, relax, just metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> the first one, uh, picture a big circle, and the big circle represents God, and then picture below it a very tiny little circle, and that represents you and the world. And uh, because the big circle is above the little circle, it's naturally hierarchical and therefore it's generically masculine and welcome to Western religion. All of Western religions have this thing. God's up there and we're down here and we talk to God and God tells us what to do. You didn't mention the blah, beard blah. In that, on that circle. Okay. Right, but it, it's not far. There was a cartoon recently in the New Yorker. It shows two angels and a big guy talking without a beard. And one says to the other, I just can't take him seriously without the beard anymore. <laughs> Okay, so that's the one. We all know that picture. Okay, that's the one we all know, <laughs> yeah. and you and all your all of our listeners could easily <laughs> talk at length about that. Now, I'm going to give you another metaphor. Just another metaphor. Relax. <laughs> Same big circle that represents God, but the only difference is, is that the little circle that represents you and me is inside the big circle. And that is uh, a more Eastern, it strikes us as a more Eastern model, but it's, as Sholem demonstrated, it's widely, widely available in Western religious tradition as well. And the goal in that model is not to pray to God or have God tell you what to do, but to realize that you have been all along, contrary to all of your illusions, a dimension of the divine. And in moments of heightened spiritual awareness, the boundary line, which is the little circle defining you inside the big circle, momentarily is erased, momentarily is blurred, and it's no longer clear where you end and God begins. So that is and a way to get at a definition of a mystic or a mystical experience, right? I think so, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. And that um, that's why uh, classical mystics don't have the comfort and luxury of praying the way people working within the model that God's a big circle above and we're a little circle below, there's somebody to talk to. But in the big circle model that we're within, there's nothing to say to God because you're already part of God. So the notion of intercessory or petitionary or conversational prayer is just simply non-existent there. Um. I actually want to I want to quote you at yourself again because this is so wonderful. This is a definition of a mystic. A mystic is anyone who has the gnawing suspicion that the apparent discord, brokenness, contradictions, and discontinuities that assault us every day might conceal a hidden unity. Yeah, I like that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's one, it's the closest I've come to nailing it down. Yeah. So it's wonderful to ponder, and we don't have the luxury here just being quiet and pondering it, but um, maybe people who are listening on the podcast can push pause. <laughs> um, uh, but it also raises these very mysterious questions, right, that conception. Um, oh, sure. Uh, right? <clears throat> I mean, I think that, that for me, the, uh, the starting point for trying to make sense out of these very slippery ideas. Mm -hmm. um, Henry, uh, uh, William James, in his uh, masterful uh, 
Jewish, uh, not Jewish, uh, uh, on mysticism, identifies the four characteristics of a mystical experience. The first, let's see if I can remember all four. Uh, the first is that they're transient. Yeah. Uh, these mystical moments, uh, they come and go at, 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 according to their own, their own timetables and for their own reasons. You have a mystical experience. You know, there's nothing you can do to guarantee a mystical experience. And anybody who says he can guarantee one for you is a quack. Um, The second characteristics uh, James identified is is that you're passive. You don't have the experience. It has you. All of a sudden, whoa, what was that? Something has changed. Uh, The third is that the experience is noetic. Uh, I, that means I, that there is intellectual content to it, but unfortunately, that leads us to the fourth. It is ineffable. You can't put it into words, right. which then, of course, leads to the uh, annoying question of why mystics who had uh, a noetic but an ineffable experience could spend so many words and books writing about it, yeah. but they don't seem to have any trouble in any religious tradition. I want to add just one more thing before we go on. Um, The kind of mystical experiences that I'm talking about are are not where the roof flies off the the building, revealing the Mormon tabernacle choir singing Handel's Hallelujah Chorus and light streams out of your facial apertures and you get a new name. I. I hope that would happen for you and for me. It hasn't had yet. I'm 70. The odds are against it. What, what, I'm, <laughs> what I would rather talk about is um, I would call them quickie everyday garden variety moments okay. yeah. in which nothing big happens and that if you weren't sort of looking for it, you might have just thought it was something you ate or drank or smoked. Uh, well, what was that? And th- then you go on. Um, but I'm I'm increasingly convinced that mystical seekers are able to have that moment where they lose themselves in the divine all the unio mystical experience several times a day, fleeting, mm-hmm. casual. Hmm. It's interesting the timing of this interview with you because just yesterday I was invited to be on. Um, uh, 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 an NPR talk show, the one of the major talk shows in New York City, Brian Lehrer. Mm-hmm. And uh, he chose as his topic, it was the day after Easter, and he chose as his topic, actually, um, religious experience. And it kind of very quickly got into mystical experience and it, the experience people have of God, which is actually really not even a sentence that's spoken much, you know, on, on public radio or in our, our And you don't get invited. Right? Huh? Sorry? And you don't get invited to dinner parties if you no, start talking that way. No, you don't. And uh, But what I'm going to tell you and what will not surprise you at all, well, he had Barb, Barbara Ehrenreich, who's, you know, who's also not known as a religious figure, had recently written a book where she actually describes very vivid mystical experience in her youth that stayed with her, um, mm-hmm. even though she's never really before this tried to put it into words or, you know, formulate it. Um, but then he he offered for his listeners, you know, this is on WNYC in New York, to 
share experiences they've had. And, of course, the phone line's completely just filled up. And uh-huh. that I know that doesn't surprise you. But, and and the, the few people who were able to um, come on, you know, they— Right. They, they they talked about this garden variety experience that was completely transformative, very brief, and very um I'd say organic, right? It was a it and 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 each of them actually described very much what you know, this definition that you gave about the kind of the separation fell away, the sense of separation fell away. And it was this knowledge, this experience of and a vividness and a unity, um, and you know, the, and the way you know somebody was in their garden, or you know, so um, it was very much. It didn't it, even as I describe, as I tell about it, it sounds suspect in a way that it didn't when they were describing the moment. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. It's a handful of smoke. Yeah, it's real hard to talk about. Yeah, yeah. But it's the most important thing to talk about. I. My hunch is is that the word religion no longer means religion. It just means some dumb stuff, quote, religious people do or say they do. Uh, the word that has replaced religion is uh, spiritual. Mm-hmm. So if you say you're religious, it doesn't tell me anything. If you say you're, you'd like to be spiritual, that tells me a lot. And I will go farther, and my suspicion is, and I don't know who— I think it may have been Moshe Edel, one of Sholem's best students. I'm not sure of this. He said that whatever it is that makes religion religion, mysticism has more of it. It Uh it seems to Uh be uh, freeze-dried. It seems to be intensified, focused. It's the the name of the game. It's it's, It's the very center of what we're talking about. Because, to be sure, mysticism is intensely personal, and um, that's that's what it always winds up doing for people. But, you know, and but again, back to religious terms, I mean, mm-hmm. one of the things, you know, it, this makes—so to, to say that God is not just in everything, but God is everything, that it, and that occasionally human beings apprehend that. Um, yeah. It makes also makes God much more messy, right? Uh, right. I mean, Gershom Sholem said the price of God's purity is the loss of his living reality. But it does also uh. cast aspersions on God's purity. Um, I mean, right, you've said, you know, I mean, it raises these questions. You know, if God is all there is, then why did God make the world? And if God made the world, how did God do it? And here's the, you know, here's the hard one. If God is perfect, but the world is not, then what went wrong? very hard to wrap your mind around these things. Well, I, I mean, so many of those classic questions and conundra uh, come from trying to make lived experience sense out of God's up there and we're down here. Yeah. And most people crash and burn on that. I, I guess it's why I've become a mystic. If you think about the other circle and we're within the divine, it poses a, obviously different problems. It solves some. It makes new problems. Uh, uh, Hasidism, not contemporary uh, Borough Park, Brooklyn Hasidism necessarily, but certainly the early generations of the of Hasidism, which eighteenth century Eastern European folk mystic revival, which Sholem correctly identified as the latest great flowering of the Jewish mystical imagination, 
had as one of their central tenets the great heresy, which in Yiddish is alls ist Gott, it's all God. Mm. And uh, I think anybody who wants to flirt with mysticism has to consider that. But the minute you say it's all God, then you're stuck with stuff you don't usually want to say is God, like pimples and dirt and what the dog left on the sidewalk mm -hmm. and Adolf Hitler. Yeah. And, cause the, but my question would be if you say, no, that's not God, then I'm going to say to you, well, who made it then? You mean there's somebody else out there making just some junk and throwing it into the mix? I, you don't have that option. Yeah. So, so what is the, what is the mystics, the Kabbalists' um, response to, or reflection on, you know, the dirt or Adolf Hitler? Like, what are the questions? That this tradition well, asks. any any attempt uh, any attempt to just solve explain those things quickly is going to be a, a disaster, yeah. obviously. But it's not and, okay, and it's if, not the where was God question, right? I mean, that's that's the the, the separation question. That's, that's the God it, is up it, there. It, and just because here. just because it's God doesn't mean that you're not obligated to go on doing the best you can with the brain God gave you. Mm -hmm. And so that doesn't mean, therefore, that you should roll over and play dead or ignore dirt or filth or terrible things in the world. You're still obligated to do what you got to do. But you have to understand that somehow, and not even in a reason sense that you or I could understand. I mean, let's... Oh, here we go. Okay, you sure you <laughs> want to on, do this? Yeah, just a couple of minutes. I know. Let's try. Let's let's, let's get happens. let's get let's get down. Buddy. Okay. 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 So, uh, I, I the um, Dove Bear, the great Magid of Mezrich, an early uh, an early Chassid, uh, <clears throat> speaks at length about what he calls the doctrine of alien thoughts, and Machshavot Zarot. And what, uh, what Rabbi Dov Bear says is that um, you'll be praying with the congregation and you'll, you'll really get into the prayers. That they'll make sense. They'll be beautiful. Uh, whoever's leading the prayers is at the top of his or her game and whoever's leading the music, the same thing. And your life is in order and the prayers are wonderful and it's been the best prayer experience that you can remember having. And Dovbear says, at precisely that moment, you will be assailed by the most lascivious thought you've had in decades. <laughs> and uh, your immediate reaction to the thought is something like, not here. Can't you see what I'm trying to do? Come back at the reception later, please. So what happens when you push the thought? Well, you push it away, and of course, it comes back even stronger and harder. And the harder you push, the stronger it wants to stay there. And uh, so what, uh, what you have to realize is, is that the reason you can't push it away, duh, is because it's part of you. And according to Dove Bear's theory is, is that it has chosen precisely this moment of heightened spiritual awareness and joy and connectedness as its opportunity to come out from under the rocks in your psychic cellar like some little Hieronymus Bosch creature saying, could I pray with you too, mistress, please? And instead of trying to beat it away, says Dove Bear, 
what you must do is say, there's room under my prayer shawl for you too, wretched little creature that you are. I still wish you weren't part of me, but I accept that you are part of me. And the minute I accept that you are part of me, most of its power over you is, is destroyed, mm-hmm. is dissolved. Mm-hmm. And that, just as one other quick aside, Dov Bear says, is that most of the time, what you need to do to redeem or to heal that terrible thought that is intruded in your prayer life is, is that think quickly what you would have to do. And he says, most of the time, it'll become clear to you what you have to do to heal that thought to take that idea and find the holy center to it and then liberate it and redeem it. He says, but if you can't think of what to do to redeem the thought, then, alas, what you must say, my praying for today is over. You close the prayer book and you're done. It was bigger than you were. Mm-hmm. Now back to the original question. Yeah. Okay, so if there's evil in me, I can try to banish it and push it away, but I won't succeed because it's part of me. What I need to do is to find something holy even in it and thereby try to redeem it and free me from it. And I can do the same thing with the world. I'm not creative or spiritually anywhere near big enough to be able to handle it, but I I think I have, this is the right way to go. Well, therefore, everything in the world that I don't like is there. I don't deny its existence. Yeah. What I, and I, especially if I say it's a manifestation of God, it raises a, a challenge for me, though. What can I do to redeem even this, this terrible thing or whatever it is? What is holy in it? And I will keep working at it. And that is how I can free myself from it. Okay, I I think that's pretty good for five minutes. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but I think you either. I wish my, be, no, go wish my students thought that, but thank you. <laughs> um, there's something intriguing to me in, you know, we're having this conversation here in the 21st century. Um, and in, a, in, a, in an interesting way, kind of coming out of the 20th century and all its great plans and ideals and <clears throat> rationalism, um, there's a new curiosity and, 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 and kind of hunger, pre- precise, and I think especially in new generations, precisely for... There's a sense that things are more complicated than we, um, well, more complicated, um, differently complicated than we made them. Um, well, it's enter Gershom Shalom. Yeah, I mean that's where that, that's. I mean it, it's it's so important for people to realize that for virtually all of the 19th and the first half, two thirds of the 20th century, uh, mysticism was widely considered to be nothing more than folk magic and superstition unbefitting a uh, unenlightened 20th century thinker. Yeah. And it, it all grew from um, uh, uh, the, the prevailing intellectual attitude in, uh, in Germany 
uh, in uh, in the 19th century. It goes under the name of Wissenschaft des Judentums, right. the Science scientific Judaism. study yeah. of Judaism. Yeah. It had to be rational. And these guys went into apoplectic shock when they found out what mystics thought and what they did. Right. And um, the result was is that they simply, as I mentioned before, tore all the pages of Kabbalah out of the history books. Yeah and didn't even allow anybody to pay attention to it. When um, Saul Lieberman, the great, the great scholar at the Jewish Theological Seminary, was uh, asked to introduce Gershom Sholem once, uh, well, I need to give you a Hebrew word to get the, to get the joke. Okay. <clears throat> the Hebrew word shtus means folly, nonsense, insanity, Madness, idolatry, stupidity. I mean, shtus, it's junk. Uh, so Lieberman introduced Sholem the following way. Shtus is shtus, but the academic study of shtus is scholarship. And then he sat down. That's what Sholem was up against. Right, right, right. That the reigning intellectual community thought it was just all so much shtus, so much nonsense, silliness. Who would care about it at all except some historian like Sholem trying to figure this stuff out? And there's even an echo kind of with, with the emergence of Kabbalah in the 13th century, right? There was that rational Jewish philosophy of the Middle Ages um, that uh, this Jewish mysticism kind of arose as a response to, or I don't know, I don't know if that's right, as a response to. Um, well, I think historically, Krista, and um, a lot of this is in Sholem, although some of it is just me, um, th th trying to uh, uh, figure out a way to make uh, things make sense. Uh, we have a, a, a in world history. There's a, 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 a sense that when religion becomes too formal, too rigid, too structured, too logical, uh, the only way to bust it open and get something decent going instead is for mysticism to reappear. Because whenever, whatever religion you're talking about, on whatever scale you're talking about, the minute mysticism becomes permissible, acceptable, possible, uh, it's an immediate threat to organized religious structures. Because what mysticism does is, is it gives everybody direct, unmediated, personal right. access to God. Right. And then they say to whoever is running the local religious community, I don't need you. I got God directly. So it winds up being a, an explosion of uh, chaos. Uh, Sholem used the word anarchy, that mysticism it creates an anarchic situation, and it's healthy and it's part of growing. Mm -hmm. Right. This, this idea of mysticism as a resource for change and development within religion. I mean, you know, and just to take this outside Judaism, and, 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 and you know, I think it's very interesting that Sholem did. I mean, he really was fascinated and took seriously mysticism as a human experience, right? I mean, he was rooted in Jewish mysticism, but he saw, he saw the, the parallels um, in other traditions. And so, you know, right now within Christianity, the fastest growing face of Christianity is, 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 is Pentecostalism, and which, you know, one sociologist I 
spoken with, it gave this, I think, a wonderful name, who are, you know, Pentecostals are Main Street mystics. Um, and it is kind of turning Christianity inside out in very interesting ways. Um, well, I know it's messing up Judaism. I, I don't know enough about <laughs> contemporary well, Christianity. Some more, say some more about how, what it's doing with Judaism. The, and and well, you mean the, the, the rise in mystical curiosity, openness to this? Or what do you mean by this? Well, yeah. Um, uh, uh, l- 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 let me give you a, uh, let's identify there are um, three kinds of uh, Kabbalah, at least. Maybe a couple more, too. But. Uh, one kind of Kabbalah is called Kabbalah Musari, and it is ethical Kabbalah for some reason. And no scholar, to my knowledge, has really uh, done the work on this. But uh, after the appearance of, of the, the Zohar, 12th, 13th century, virtually every manual of ethical discipline written within Judaism was written by a practicing Kabbalist. Uh-huh. That, that to me is an extraordinary statement, especially mm-hmm. since mysticism gets such bad press and they say, oh, they're anarchists, you know, you can't trust them to do good things. Yeah, or it's purely uh, it's, spiritual, as, you know, right? As, as opposed beam to me up, Scotty, float away, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, I think when you think about it, it makes perfect sense. I mean, you don't have an experience that is unitive in which you feel yourself dissolved into the divine all and emerge from that wanting to rip somebody off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> your immediate desire is to show them how to get there with you and, and so forth. Uh, th- the second kind of uh, Kabbalah is called uh, Kabbalah Ma'asit, or what in uh, Jewish history is called practical Kabbalah. If uh, Krista has an experience of the divine, she now presumably in some dim sense also has an insight into the inner workings of creation and how everything functions together. And it might be tempting for her, not you, I'm just making this up, of course, might be tempting for her to use this new knowledge as a way of, well, maybe figuring out which stock to buy or which stock to sell or how real estate is going to go or maybe to help Timmy, who's sick in the hospital, get better. kind of as magic. Mysticism yeah. and magic. Yeah. And, and that's why there's a whole lot of people who think that's all Kabbalah is and mm-hmm. superstition and hocus pocus and all. And the third kind of uh, Kabbalah, which is mainly what Sholem talks about and which most students of uh, Kabbalah of, of, of these times, like myself, is called a Kabbalah Ionit or theoretical Kabbalah. And that's pretty much what we've been talking about. Now, this doesn't include, there was a branch of, I'm not sure when, a long time ago, where uh, Christianity took Kabbalistic tradition and ran with it. And that's referred to as Kabbalah, but it's always spelled with a C. Uh, It's a quick way to identify which kind of Kabbalah you're talking about. But uh, that kind of Kabbalah includes alchemy and tarot cards and horoscopes, and it goes all the way to the top. Oh, I didn't realize. I I did not understand that connection. That that yeah, a, that's, that's a big shoot. thing, yeah. Uh-huh. And then, of course, there's this uh, place in uh, their worldwide called the Kabbalah Center, which Madonna yeah. uh, got involved with. And I had a chance, actually, to interview uh, Moshe Adel, one of the, the great scholars of Kabbalah today. And I asked him, so was Madonna, uh, is Madonna a Kabbalist? Is this for real? And his answer was very insightful. He said, hey, 
I have enough trouble trying to figure out what Kabbalah was in the 16th century without trying to guess what it'll be now. And which, which I took to mean that it's an open-ended concept and that, who knows, maybe she'll turn out to be mainstream in terms of Jewish Kabbalah. The, the big beef at the Kabbalah Center, besides the fact that they sell Kabbalah water for 10 bucks a bottle, which is suspicious to me right out of the box, is that they claim that uh, anybody could practice Kabbalah. And from everything I know about Kabbalah, that's just simply wrong. Kabbalah is a way... Uh, to do Judaism. It's Judaism on steroids. Mm -hmm. you, 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 you can't do another religion and do Kabbalah at the same time because Kabbalah only makes sense as a system for making sense out of and heightened sense out of classical Judaism. Um, but, you know, here, here's a question about Gershom Sholem that I actually think also gets at the question of... Um, how this becomes interesting and alluring and magnetic again for modern people. Um, you know, he was a secular Jew, in my understanding. I mean, he was, yeah, yes, he was, he, was, um, he was going against the tide of a certain kind of rationalism about religion, but he was a secular Jew, very rational, a great intellectual, and this was this mysticism was his point of entry in kind of re-engaging mm -hmm. and, and actually seeing the core of Judaism. Um, Buber, uh, one of the, probably f uh, for my lights, the, the greatest Jewish thinker of the last century, yeah. uh, Buber and Sholem were constantly arguing in at war with one another. Buber's critique of Sholem while acknowledging his extraordinary scholarship, said, unfortunately, he's a grocer. He knows where all the cans on uh, all the shelves are, but he's never opened one or ate anything. Um, okay. All right. What do you think about that? Um, nothing that Sholem wrote or said indicated that he'd had a mystical experience. Yeah. I mean, if, if you want to take that, uh, uh, that psychological concept of overcompensation, wherein somebody who fears he is inadequate in one area overcompensates by making a whole big deal out of it in his or her life, then you could argue that perhaps Sholem secretly feared that he wasn't mystical enough, so instead he wrote about it to try to cover up the fact that he'd never had a mystical experience. Mm. Uh, you read Buber, on the other hand, and that you read half a page and you have a mystical experience. Right, right, right. I, I guess I'm, I'm interested in your perspective on, um, you know, we, we also live in one of these ages when we're kind of, um, you know, hung over from uh, rationalism and secularism. And but not with a lot of it, it's the same entry points that other generations had into religion. Um, how do you and I you know I want to ask this question in a positive way. What how do you what do you experience this mysticism and this mystical tradition to offer um, to twenty first century people? Oi, to offer what a an annoying question. Well, do you know what I'm? I'm well, no, I, no, I hear you. No, what is it? Yeah, that, I, I, what is it that's a? Hmm, I don't, I well, not the right okay. word either. What is it that's attractive 
uh, that's not a good word either. Well, I mean, the the old saw is is that uh, if for our purposes, we would say old time religion uh, wants to know what God wants us to do, whereas a mystical variety of the same spiritual tradition would say, no, 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 I want to know what God knows. I want to see the world through God's eyes. I want to lose myself in the divine all. Mm -hmm. That's how I want to experience uh, uh, God. That's how I uh, want to make sense out of religion. And um, your question in that sense, or it's so annoying, is just very, very perceptive. I mean, old-time religion, God's up there, we're down here, God says this, we pray to God for that, just doesn't seem to cut it for most of the people I talk to. Yeah. Most of the people who are seriously into religion are seriously interested in experiencing the divine. The language is important. Uh, one could argue that what we're witnessing is the pendulum shift from the extreme, sometimes destructive rationalism of the past couple of centuries and returning to a, a, a more balanced view of religious life. And mysticism is the way home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We don't have much time left, but I, I want to just talk a little bit about some of the other just really intriguing aspects of of, of of Kabbalah and Jewish mystical tradition. Um, you know, the, the this notion um, that creation, this is not just mystical, but I think Kabbalah really um, emphasizes it. This creation is not something that happened once, but is an ongoing act, that creation is now, I think is how you said it once. Yeah, it's uh, the doctrine of a continuous uh, creation mm-hmm. that... Um, well, uh, God can't remember anything. It doesn't mean that God's above a certain age. It just means God can't remember anything. And God has no hopes for the future because, I love this, there is no such thing as time for God. God experiences the past, the present, and the future as one present continuous reality. Mm-hmm. That was a good answer to your question. I forgot the question. Which, no, creation, that creation is an, is an ongoing thing, that it is, hap- that it is always happening, not on something in the past and not a one-time event. And so that means that um, for us, the world's coming into being is, as we said before, continuous. And uh, we come close to God when we are willing to experience the world in the same way, that it's always possible and that the divine is always present. And it's only the silly illusion that I'm in business for myself, which becomes in translation that I made the world, that I'm God. I think, yeah, I titled my last book, I'm God, You're Not. That's what (laughs) we we have to keep getting straight. Oh, I forgot. I'm not God. I didn't make the world. God makes the world, and God's making it right now. And to really understand the implications of that statement is to have a mystical experience. Mm. And then there's this kind of beautiful sort of uh, conundrum that... uh, that language and, in fact, letters, especially in in Hebrew, are I mean, le- letters themselves are instruments of divine creation, and and God creates through speaking, and and um, and yeah, and at the same time, 
this this paradox that that it is that you know that these mystical experiences and insights are ultimately ineffable. And I mean, it, it's this fascinating juxtaposition of these things in Jewish tradition and mystical tradition. Um, well, as you, I think, wisely, correctly, correctly said, um, it, God brings the world into being through speech. And if you were to interview uh, 500 rabbis and could survive that experience... Uh, and tried to distill what they thought was central to Judaism, I'm confident that uh, what would come up at the top of every list would be the importance of language, yes. both as yes. human beings use speech, yes. but also as divine speech. And that what perhaps many of your, uh, your listeners might not be aware of is that uh, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet themselves are not just signs for sounds, as most letters are in most languages, but indeed they are the building blocks of creation. I, I'm not sure I understand that, but I know that that's mainstream Judaism, and that therefore the holiness of language and of the alphabet is extraordinary because it is the mechanism through which God communicated or tried to communicate with human beings. So language becomes very, very important. Uh, indeed, uh, <clears throat> it gives rise to a kind of curveball uh, Jewish fundamentalism. Uh, Jews have fundamentalism just like everybody else. Yeah. I mean, we got our yeah. sacred text and we have our people who think, oh, yeah, every word God said it just the way. If that's the word, that's what God said it. Yeah, I know it looks like a typo, but God must have said it. God said it that way. Boom, boom, boom. It's literally just what God says. But Jewish fundamentalism adds a curveball which would make Freud happy. Judaism says is that, well, and if God really gave all that stuff and said those very words, then they couldn't just mean what they say. And now the sky's the limit and Sholem's back in play because he's talking about the infinitely analyzable quality of uh, any word that you would read in the Torah. Hmm. So a Jew sits down to read the Torah and there is no commitment that we are sure what it'll wind up meaning when we're done reading it and trying to make sense out of it. That for every person who reads the Torah, there is a different level of, here's the key uh, adjective, valid interpretation. And Sholem's, one of Sholem's great insights is, is that that kind of mystical reading of the Torah necessarily results in what I would call a productive anarchy. Didn't he talk about, didn't he, Gershom Sholem, talk about uh, that, that every, or was this from Lurianic Kabbalah, that every word of the Torah has 600,000 faces, that's one for each of the people of, his, of the Israelites who stood at the foot of Mount Sinai, and that, that, that the meaning of that was that each person has his own, his or her own unique access to revelation. We didn't have a conversation before you did this interview, right? No. no. This is right. I just brought it in a couple of quotes as your producer suggested. Here's the quote: Isaac Luria taught that there are there are six hundred thousand faces of the Torah, yeah. Yeah. as many as there were souls in Israel at the time of the revelation at Sinai. Sholem says this meant that the principle. Everybody in Israel has his or her own way of reading and interpreting the Torah according to the root of his soul mm. or to his own lights. Mm. Mm. 
So that's something that we all took from Sholem and are indebted to him for. Mm. It would be impossible, Krista, to talk about contemporary Jewish spiritual renewal without the extraordinary work that Sholem brought uh, to the community. Um, and the world that we live in now is is this brew of um, this curiosity, uh, I think an openness to mystery and 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 therefore also to the mystical aspect of our traditions, a kind of cosmic curiosity alongside um, very well publicized fundamentalist and literal literalistic um, readings of religious tradition. I mean Gershom Sholem did not live to see these particular dynamics. I wonder how you think about um, what the heart of this mystical tradition, I don't want to use the word offer again, has, has to offer to the world, I won't use that word. Um, how, you know, how does it speak to this world? This And, and of course, behind all of that, uh, behind a lot of the fundamentalism and the literalism is is a lot of anxiety and fear that is, in fact, mm-hmm. kind of reality-based because there's a lot to be anxious and fearful about. So, well, I, yeah. I, okay. I, I mean, I, I, I think what our generation seems to be living through is the realization that rationalism is only part of the answer, that rationalism can only get you so far. There, there was a time when people thought it was the answer and it could get you there, and it's clear that it won't get you there. And as a matter of fact... I, I think I'm not the first one to notice this, that Auschwitz and Hiroshima were perfectly rational decisions and behaviors. Mm-hmm. So there's this, there's this sense that religion has to be more than rationalism. And mysticism offers, it says, sort of like in the corner, psst, hey, kid, how'd you like a direct experience of the divine? Right. Would that help your religious life? And a lot of people discover that they're mystics after all when they're given that offer. Mm-hmm. You, you told me when, when I spoke with you years and years and years ago, you told me a story about meeting with some suburban high school kids, Jewish kids. And I think you said you'd asked you'd ask at the beginning who believes in God or something. And oh, gosh. Yeah. I re- to tell yeah. That story because it seems to me that that's relevant here. Yeah. Well, it, it, we uh, part of our congregation's uh, education program involved uh, going away with families for uh, for a weekend, pre-bar mitzvah kids. And it was um, on a, a, a Sabbath afternoon, and uh, I thought I had a question that would um, uh, get a good discussion going. So I said, how many of you kids here believe in God? I figured some would say yes, some would say no, it would be a good discussion. But to my... Uh, to my grave disappointment, not one kid raised his hand. I mean, sometimes kids that age will say no, like uh, right. for spite. You know, no, it's, no, it's not raining. No, I don't believe in God. And I was, I remember being just crushed. I think, oh my God, this is, so it's come to this, 3,000 years of Jewish piety and struggle for a bunch of obnoxious little suburban Jewish kids that don't believe in God. I want to kill them. Um, and I, I did the pedagogic equivalent of dropping back several yards to punt 
And uh, a little bit later on in the discussion, it occurred to me to ask a similar question. I said, hey, by the way, how many of you kids have been close to God? And so help me God, every kid raised his or her hand. Mm. And I was like, tell me more. I want to know what they're talking about. And they ticked off uh, uh, an, an experience of God. One said last night when Mother lit the Sabbath candles, I... It was beautiful. I felt I was close. Another one said, uh, uh, last year my grandfather died, and I was sad, but I, I somehow felt close to God. I mean, they knew what it meant to be close to God, and that's uh, led me to an insight into Jewish thought at any rate. If you ask a Jew, uh, do you believe in God, they're inclined to take it as if it's an answer from the House on american Activities right. Committee. You, right. you, do you or do you not believe in like, I'd like, can I talk to my attorney, please? Right. Um, so for, uh, for us, the issue was not so much do you or do you not believe, because I guess our feeling would be you can't help what you believe and ask me after the funeral of a child if I believe anything. Mm. Um, but uh, there are there are times when uh, we are close, and we would do ourselves uh, a greater service instead of worrying about what we believed at any given time, uh, worrying instead about how close we are uh, to the divine mm. or how distant we are. Mm. Can I tell one more story? It yeah, reminds yeah, me yeah, of yeah, sure. Um, I, I was leading a. Uh, a tour of the the sanctuary of the prayer hall with the uh, children in the congregation's uh, preschool. Um, it's in the fine print of my uh, former rabbinic contract. I had to do guest appearances <laughs> with the preschool. And instead of my going down to their room and doing a little song and dance there, <clears throat> since it was just before the High Holy Days and the sanctuary had to be reconfigured to accommodate the sudden influx of Jews who all seem to feel a compelling need to be in the same place at the same time. I, I thought it would be impressive, and I brought him into the sanctuary, and there was a lot of extra seats set up and so forth. And and then I figured as a piece de resistance, I'd have them come up onto the, <clears throat> the, the bim or the little right. prayer stage up in front of the room where there was a, an ark where we kept the scroll of the Torah. It was... Uh, uh, accessible via a, a big floor-to-ceiling curtain. So I figured what I'd do is uh, we'd go up to the, the uh, on the bima, I'd open the curtain, I'd take the Torah out, and I'd let the kids read from it. And if uh, their hands were clean, they could pet the white part of the parchment, which sort of feels like peach fuzz. It's what we educators call an affective lesson. <laughs> And uh, I, I got him up on the stage, and I was about to, <clears throat> excuse me, call them, uh, open the ark, but uh, I saw the teacher at the back tapping her wristwatch, which, as you may know, is an old Talmudic gesture, which means your time is about <laughs> up, bucko. So uh, I said, I tell you what, boys and girls, uh, we'll, we'll come back uh, when we get together again in a couple of weeks. We'll come back here, and I'm going to open that curtain there and show you what's behind it. It's very special. You know, and so they all say, Shalom, Rabbi, and like little ducklings follow the teacher back to the class. Well, the next day, the teacher shows up in my office with the following story. Apparently, the preceding day's hastily concluded lesson 
has occasioned a fierce debate among the little people as to what is behind the curtain. They didn't know. <laughs> and the following four answers are given, which is, uh, uh, I think, pretty pretty interesting. Uh, one kid, uh, obviously uh, destined to become a professor of nihilistic philosophy at a great university, opined that behind that curtain was absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Another kid, uh, less imaginative, thought it had a Jewish holy thing in there. Uh, A a third kid, obviously a devotee of American uh, game show television subculture, guessed that behind that curtain was a brand new car. (laughs) (laughs) And and the fourth kid, and that's what brings us back to Gershom Sholem and Kabbalah, (laughs) said, no, you're all wrong. Next week when that rabbi man comes and opens that curtain behind it, there would be a giant mirror from a four-year-old that somehow that little soul knew that through looking at the words of sacred scripture, he would encounter himself in a new and a heightened and revealing way. Mm. Mm. Okay, that's lovely. I think that I think those are your last words. But unless, was there anything? Is there? I, there's so much we didn't get to. But is there anything that just must be said um, to add to this? Well, yeah. There's <clears throat> there there is there is one other uh, one other story. If you want me, yeah. if you have. Okay, <clears throat> and it is actually the one thing that we didn't touch on, which is in a very important part of Sholem's teaching. Um, as we mentioned before, Judaism and Islam and Christianity are revealed traditions. So therefore, what happened for all of them at Mount Sinai is of ultimate importance. I mean, did God talk to Moses? If he did, what did it sound like? Could we have picked it up on a tape recorder? Mm -hmm. In other words, what is the divine status of those allegedly holy words we find in sacred text? And it it was Sholem, uh, who I, I found in his book, it was on on the Kabbalah and its symbolism. Yeah. I must have read it 50 years ago. It changed my life. Uh, and I subsequently found out it did for most of my, uh, my, uh, my colleagues and friends who had read it also. Uh, it turns out that there is a, a mystical tradition that says that God really didn't give the whole five books of Moses. God didn't really give all ten utterances. There's another tradition that said that God gave just the first two. I'm the Lord your God. Don't have any other gods. Uh, well, there's a guy that Sholem found, a, a, a chassid named Mendel Torum of Raimanov. He says, no, God didn't even give the first utterance at Sinai. I'm the Lord your God. God didn't even give the first word, which is anochi, first person pronoun singular I. All God gave was the first letter of the of the first word, which is the Hebrew letter Aleph, yeah. which most people who know a little bit of Hebrew will quickly say is soundless, but Sholem points out that's not quite correct. Sholem points out, as a matter of fact, that the sound of the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which coincidentally has the numerical equivalent of one, yeah. um, is actually the noise that the, your larynx makes as it clicks into gear. It's a teeny little, barely audible click. 
And that's what God gave at Mount Sinai. And Sholem comments upon that at great length, of course. He says that Mendel Torm of Raimanov's clever teaching makes the revelation a mystical one. It says that what happened at Mount Sinai was barely audible and uh, had no particular sound, and it therefore became the job of, in this case, Moses the prophet or of anyone else, to give human content to that otherwise unpronounceable sound. The Zohar says that the Aleph is a seed in which is enwrapped the entire Torah, and what it means to be a religious person is to spend your life unpacking that seed. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I did. I, I am aware of that, and it's just so huge that I didn't know if we could do it any kind of justice. But I think your story did open it up. Well, thank I, you. I just also have to say, that, you know, when I, I said earlier on, I feel like there's so much resonance with things we're learning now that feel unconnected. I mean, just I don't know that the 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 emphasis on letters. Um, and on naming and letters and even the golem traditions of you know that using it's using letters that gives life and then and then we're working with DNA which is about letters. <laughs> um, I mean even the one the aleph and the one um, the, the 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 not the ainsof but the say that again, sefirot it's numbers sefirot infrastructure of reality do you know what i'm saying i feel like there yeah. are so many echoes with this mystical tradition and these cutting edge things we're learning on our in fact our frontiers of rationalism talking with you convinces me even more that sholem was extraordinarily important hmm. because he brought this stuff to light he read this stuff. He read it in manuscripts that weren't accessible to anybody, and they were written in, often in uh, dialects and styles of the language that few people could read or understood. And, and he left it to us as, uh, as an inheritance. Mm. And it seems, uh, from the questions that you're asking to me too, seems to be a way that uh, we have of finding our way home again. Mm. The epigraph that I chose for my novel, Kabbalah, A Love Story, um, is from Sholem. Uh, he says, uh, in none of their systems did the Kabbalists fail to stress the interrelation of all worlds and levels of being. Everything is connected with everything else. And this interpenetration of all things is governed by exact, though unfathomable laws. We have the gnawing suspicion in our generation now, Krista, that everything is connected. Yeah. And every now and then we are given a glimpse, uh, a, a tickle, a whisper that maybe it indeed is. And that's what religious people seem to be most interested in appropriately doing, which is finding more and more connections so that it's impossible to do anything independent of something else. Oh, well, Rabbi Kushner, thank you so much. This was wonderful. Um, really grateful. And um, I look forward to putting this on the air, and we'll, we'll, we'll give you a heads up when we do that. Please do. Yeah. <laughs> Just to, I hope I meet you in person one day. Thank you again. I would like that very much. Thank right. you, Krista. Bye-bye. Bye.